On December 4th, 2003, a 38-year-old man from Baltimore, Maryland, is found drowned in a small creek on the outskirts of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, though he had sustained 36 stab wounds from a pocket knife. Investigations have proven inconclusive, and there is a debate on whether his death was a murder or a suicide. You're listening to the Mysterious Brews podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Jonathan Luna. The 38-year-old Luna was prosecuting two suspected heroin dealers in Baltimore. He was working late crafting plea deals when without his glasses, which he apparently needed to drive, or his cell phone, he left the courthouse and drove a mysterious path through four states, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, before getting off the Pennsylvania Turnpike in Lancaster County. His body was found behind Sensenig and Weaver well drilling in Brecknock Township, stabbed 36 times. But the cause of death, the married father of two, had drowned in this stream. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. It's raining from one of them other uh, hurricanes that's coming through Louisiana. They just can't keep, catch a break down there. But the good news is, is guess who's back? Back again. Back again. He's off Coach his is uh, back. world line dancing. Tell your friend. Tour. He got his turquoise bow. Coach is back. Coach is back. You know, when you're doing secret... Super secret double probation work for the government, and they won't they won't tell, they won't let you tell you what you've been doing. Are you Richard Doty? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how. I mean, that guy's an asshole. Anyway, I am back, ladies and gentlemen. I know you missed me. I know that I am the glue that holds this uh, show together. But I'd like to thank Rob from Cigar Store Idiots for taking my place while I was gone. But I'm no longer gone, so there's that. Well, we got us a new Patreon patron. Nice. They must have knew I was coming. Must have. Our newest patron is Miss Lindsay Stacy. Thank you, Lindsay, at the $3 tier. Your stickers should be arriving before this podcast drops. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also have a new five-star review, our first one since August 17th. And it dropped on September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the horrible tragedy. But they wrote, cheers, five stars, from Tuesday's Child 04242. I stumbled across this podcast while working an overnight shift and ended up binging episodes till dawn. I'm hooked. I love their sense of humor, and they cover so many cases I've never heard of before. I want to get a beer with Arlo and the coach to discuss missing person cases and the Validity of the Patterson-Gimlin film. Five stars all around. I'll talk missing persons cases all night long, but if, uh, if I'm sure this person believes, like most do, about the Patterson-Gimlin film, but I'm not going to hear it. If you don't believe in the Patterson-Gimlin film, don't even bring it up to me because you'll get furious anger. Because I promise you, I have seen every version of that video, that film. I've seen every breakdown of that film. I've seen every 
film trying to prove it is to be a hoax. I've seen it all. Anything that's on YouTube about this film, I've seen it at least twice. You will never in the history in the history of this world for the until the end of time, you will never convince me that that film is not real. And it sure as hell ain't that guy that claims it Bob Hieronymus. That no, son, that's that. my wallet on the bulge of that thigh. No, it's not. No, it isn't. Well, how do you explain the titties, Bob? Yeah, Bob, <laughs> you got them bitch tits like that. That is 100% genuine, genuine article. Now, I've seen tons of Bigfoot footage that I'm like, oh, that's bullshit. That one's yeah. fake. That one's nothing. Uh, anything Todd Stanling's done, fuck him. But that shit is real. Yes, sir, it is. I couldn't wait, and so I've already popped <laughs> mine, but we got the old Rolling Rock this evening. Because Pennsylvania beer, while it is delicious, just doesn't make it as far south as it should. That's not as good as you think it is. <laughs> it was a good right. idea at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's all right. I'm not like... It's not Foster's. God, that was awful. How did we ever? Well, the problem was, and when we had the Fosters, is we also had Bearded Iris. And we knew what we had Home if we got, IPA. we got finished. And when you have a fabulous beer such as that, and then you decide to drink Fosters. Your palate <laughs> your says, palate will piss re- off. Yeah, your palate rejects you. Sticking with our theme of weird-ass cases... This case is going to be weird for many different reasons because we have the mystery of why he went where he went, when he, why he left when he did, why he didn't tell anybody, who was with him possibly, and how could they possibly, how many times I'm going to use possibly, possibly, how many times I'm going to use it over and over again? I don't know how many times you're going to say how possibly. I'm rusty, man. I've had a long break. But anyway, how could they initially claim this to be a suicide? I, I, that's still a, a head scratcher. But anyway, you're letting way too much information out. Well, it's like a preview. A, pre- a preview? <laughs> a preview. Not a preview, but a per review. Per the review. <laughs> Damn it. I definitely, I'm definitely rusty. He has not got his sea legs, boys Rusty Shackleford. So here we go. Jonathan Luna grew up in the projects of New York City. He was described by his friends as, as selfless, energetic, crit, <laughs> it's, it's catching, <laughs> charismatic with a caring soul. His aspirations were to graduate college and make his parents proud. His respirations. His father... Provided for the family by running a restaurant, but that restaurant was struggling to stay open. His mother was a stay-at-home housewife. Now she jo- should have got her ass out and got a job. If that restaurant's struggling, she should have went and picked up a couple things of work. You know, put pick up a shift. Come on, people. Jonathan went on to graduate from Fordham University in 1987 with a degree in history. Hey, After that's my degree too. I got a history degree. You didn't do you didn't do what he did though. What, what like make something out of him out of himself? No, he went on <laughs> and enrolled at the University of North Carolina's law school. Oh yeah, I'd have flunked out of that shit. He obtained his law degree and landed a job as a federal clerk with the U.S. District Judge William L. Osteen in Greensboro, North Carolina. North Carolina, what what what? 
It was at this job that he would meet his wife, Angela. The couple soon married and settled in Elkridge, Maryland, which is a suburb of Baltimore. Which is a crime-ridden cesspool, according to the TV show The Wire. I had a good time when I was there. I didn't see any crime. But if you look at the, if you watch The Wire, which, you know, Omar died. Poor guy. If you want to hear, what was his name? Michael something? If you'd like to know more about Omar or Chalky White from Boardwalk Empire, please listen to uh, the next episode of Cigar Store Idiots where they cover him. In this <laughs> suburb, <laughs> Angela and Jonathan had two sons. Jonathan would land an assistant U.S. attorney's job while in Baltimore. He would focus his energy on convicting sexual predators. Noble cause. Very noble cause. A colleague of his... Ms. I don't particularly care for sexual predators. I, I, I think I'm, short of shooting Taliban, that's I, like a noble... There should be an open season. I'm not a fan. They're not good people. Does the general hunting license I obtain every year, does that cover sexual predators or do I need a new stamp? I th- yeah, I was going to say, I think you got to go to the post office and get a stamp. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> well, I'll go right after we're done. I'm getting one of our stamps just in case I run around one of them pitta butts. So a colleague of Jonathan's, Miss Bonnie Greenberg, stated, quote, he dedicated a lot of his caseload to protecting children. He protected hundreds and hundreds of children from abuse, end quote. Which automatically gets you into heaven. Yes. Like, you're just there. there there's so much, so many things you can do in your life that are bad and still get into heaven if you're trying to protect children. Unless, of course, you know, you're protecting them by day and assaulting them by night. Which would be weird. Weird ass Batman type shit. I concur. <laughs> <laughs> so on December now here's where I started running into the crazy what the fuck moments because Already? Yes. Because they state and it kind of makes Who's sense. Who's they? Everything I read. It's kinda like the Everything men in black. you read is a they? Yeah. So They've got new pronouns. About to say, you're using the proper pronoun. <laughs> So on December 3rd, 2003, it was a regular work day for Jonathan. He kisses his wife goodbye, and he was working on a case involving two men who were accused of dealing heroin from their music label studio, Stash House Records. Which is bad, okay? One of the men was also facing a murder charge. Now, Jonathan had spent the entire evening working on the case and called Archangelo Tuminelli a co-worker at approximately 9 p.m. that night, saying he was leaving the office and that he would see him the following morning. They were going to offer the two men a plea deal, and he would work on it at home throughout the night so it would be ready in the morning. According to the clocking out system in the office car park, Luna did not leave the office until 11.38 p.m. That's pretty late work. That's pretty late work now. Yeah. He did leave his phone and his glasses on his desk. Which is odd for several reasons, because who leaves a phone anymore? If I walk to the bathroom without my phone, I panic just a little. Well, it was 2003. Oh, well, okay. They don't have the iPhone and the Wikipedia and all that stuff yet. But he's going to need his glasses to drive. He is not legally allowed to drive. Without his corrective lenses. Keep that in mind, folks. So he either had a spare pair or... That rhymed. He left in a hurry. Spare pair. Or 
We might answer that. <laughs> so, on Thursday, 4th of December, 2003, Jonathan's car entered Delaware, where $200 was taken from an ATM at a rest stop. He then crossed into New Jersey and on into Pennsylvania at around 4 a.m. In Pennsylvania, his credit card was used at a Sunoco station. His Easy Pass was used on the I-95 into Delaware, but after this, he started to purchase toll tickets. Yeah, so if you are living under a rock, an Easy Pass is just something that you pay for month to month that allows you to bypass all the tolls. You don't have to wait in line. You can just drive right through them, and it takes a picture of your license plate, I guess, and then deducts it, deducts it from your month monthly payment. But yeah, at some point, he starts to pay the tolls even though he has a fast pass, which is very odd. Now, his car was then parked behind Sensing and Weaver Well Drilling Office. Well Drilling? Yeah, in Denver, Pennsylvania. A worker for the well drilling. Oh, well drilling. You thought they were drilling for whales? No, I thought you just said welderling. I was like, what the hell's welderling? You're, you're, you're killing me over here. <laughs> well drilling. They was you, drilling for water. You didn't enunciate. Okay, well, well drilling office in Denver, Pennsylvania. Is okay. that better? That is fantastic. Okay. Excellent. So a worker for the well <laughs> drilling corporation. I appreciate you doing that for me. Yeah. Arrives right as it's starting to get daylight and to start his shift and notices a car with the headlights on and the run, the engine running. So he decides to investigate. And obviously, there's a lot of drunks around Denver, and this is an effort, like, once a week occurrence. They find some drunk in their parking lot trying to sleep it over. So he assumed that this was going, this was what Which was we've happening. all done. I mean, name, have you, I mean, come on. Everybody's parked in a random parking lot to sleep it off, right? Or is that just me? No, I did it one time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad because I was like, oh shit, did I just tell him myself? (laughs) So as the worker approaches the car, he notices that there is blood smeared over the door and the front fender. Further investigation finds Jonathan's body lying face down in a creek at approximately 5.30 a.m. with multiple stab wounds. 30 Six stab wounds. Now, that's a bunch. Yes. That's not just a few. That's like 36 more than I would ever want. Yes. Now, when investigators get to the car, they find money strewn all inside the car along with cell phone equipment. But remember, he left his cell phone at his office. There was blood on the driver's side door and fender and a large pool of blood on the floor of the back seat. The police report also says that Luna had a, quote, traumatic wound on the right side of his head. And like Coach said, he had been stabbed 36 times and then drowned when he apparently was face down in the creek. So he was either pushed unconscious or he collapsed due to the loss of blood and expired by drowning. But no matter what, is a this is a terrible way to go. There's much better ways than getting stabbed 36 times and then drowning. Awful. Very sad. Now, here is another. There's several corners that I guess look into this, but the Lancaster County corner 
I found was Dr. Barry Walp. He said that the subject was dressed in a suit and overcoat. His wallet with identification and cash was in his pocket, but it was unclear whether he had been robbed. Well, I mean, that I would say that is is a good assessment because you don't know How if much there's money? something missing right. because it's not there. However, if you're going to rob somebody, just like with the um, uh, case in Tennessee, yeah, uh, um, Blair Adams, it. Blair Adams, just like the Blair Adams case, if you're going to murder somebody, why not rob them? And if you're going to rob them, take their cash. Blair Adams was found with what four thousand dollars worth of cash on him, and then gold and platinum and all kinds of stuff, and they didn't rob him. I heard that gold and platinum was better than cash. Especially now, but yeah. So you don't know if maybe he they took his jewelry, maybe they took something more valuable. I think it's a good assessment to say it's unsure if he was robbed or not. Now, Coroner Walp said that the assistant U.S. attorney Jonathan Luna had been quote brutalized with multiple stab wounds that could have been caused by a pen knife, and then drowned in the creek. Federal law enforcement official at the time told reporters on condition of anonymity. That, quote, they were defensive wounds, end quote. Walp, however, said they he did not observe any defensive wounds during the autopsy. Yeah. <clears throat> defensive wounds are going to be on the hands, fingers, forearms, stuff like that. Think about if someone's trying to stab you, where exactly are you going to use the block? You're not going to use the bottom of your foot. You're not going to use your torso. Here, stab me in the good. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to use your hands. So, yeah, there were no defensive wounds observed, which is very odd. And another oddity was all of the wounds appeared to be in the neck and upper chest. Some very shallow, which we will get to. But Jonathan's family and friends said that they believed his death was connected to his job because during his career he had prosecuted drug dealers, armed robbers, and child molesters. So he made a a list of people that did not like him. Now, again, these are more WTFs that are, that are throwing around here. According to another report, inside the car, investigators found that the purchase toll tickets had blood smeared on them. Additionally, the puddle of blood in the back seat and the footwell indicated that Jonathan hadn't been driving his own car, but someone else had. Inside the car was an unidentified fingerprint in the blood as well as blood from an unidentified source. While the death was initially ruled as a homicide, quote, law enforcement sources soon began to speculate that Luna had committed suicide. <sighs> now, another... I'm not digging that, and you'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about yeah. it, but God, that is just ridiculous. Another... Pathologist, this time Dr. Gary Kirshner believed that Luna had been murdered, but according to him, supposedly the FBI had asked him to change the manner of death to suicide. Kirshner announced Luna had been, quote, brutalized with multiple stab wounds. In fact, he had several stab wounds over his back and defensive wounds on his hands and arms as if attempting to ward off an attacker. He said that some of the wounds on his neck and chest were small puncture marks, which were consistent with torture. So here again, you have discrepancies in what people are seeing. He either did or he did not have defensive wounds. 
I don't understand how that can get – how can one coroner say or one pathologist say he didn't see any and then another say yes? Yeah, of course. I mean, of course, we are not pathologists. We've never done anything like that. and But we can appreciate how complex and how um, difficult it might be to do that job. However, you're going to look – if people are trained in that profession – you would expect some sort of uh, similarities between their conclusions. Conclusions. There we go. And the other thing that I don't understand is the other the other coroner st- said that he didn't see any defensive wounds. Is that how they base their suicide plea or suicide findings off of? Because you can't have Perhaps. defensive wounds yeah, and you're, commit you're not gonna, suicide. Yeah, you're not going to commit suicide and stab your own forearm. But again, you're not going to commit suicide and stab yourself in the neck. 36 times. Yeah. Most people that cut themselves for suicide are going to do the wrists and maybe slit their own throat. Ugh, I, get in there. But I don't think I guarantee that's a very small percentage. But you're not going to find somebody that's going to stab themselves in the neck 36 times to commit suicide. With a pen knife? That's, I mean, that's just ridiculous. They sent Monty Python death by a thousand cuts. It's Chinese torture, man. What are you talking about? No, man? it's Monty. I say it's money, so therefore it's money. I mean, they may have done it. I'm not Lancaster County authorities one. agree. <laughs> Lancaster County authorities agreed with Dr. Kirshner and continued to investigate Jonathan's death as a homicide. They obtained the CCTV footage from the rest stop in Delaware and the Sunoco station in Pennsylvania, hoping that they could catch a glimpse of Jonathan. However, he could not be spotted in any of the footage, even though his credit card had been used. While he wasn't spotted on the cameras, several workers claimed they had seen him that night. One of the employees said, quote, he was just very calm. He must have been with people, but I don't think he knew they were going to kill him, end quote. So now the following account of the initial investigation is according to the Penn State University case study done on Jonathan Luna's death. And they start off with their initial investigation phase that they discovered. In their findings, the discovery of Jonathan's body came at the close of his prosecution of a violent drug trafficking organization. Jonathan had been prosecuting Baltimore-based rap musician Dion Lionel Smith and his one-time associate, Walter O'Reilly. Poindexter. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at that. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. It definitely is. <laughs> Who were accused of distributing heroin and running a violent heroin ring from their Stash House Records studio. Lionel Smith pled guilty to distribution of heroin and use of a handgun in a drug trafficking crime. Walter Poindexter pled guilty to three counts of distribution of heroin. Conspiracy charges against them were dropped. Smith and Poindexter were in jail at the time of Luna's death. Smith's attorney, Kenneth Ravenel, and keep that name handy. I got it. What was it again? Kenneth Ravenel. (laughs) Okay, now I have it. Said it would make no sense for his client or Poindexter to be involved. According to Ravenel, the plea deal that Smith agreed to was the same deal that he offered to the prosecutors two weeks before the trial. Ravenel told a TV news anchor, quote, Mr. Luna was instrumental in negotiating the deal and convincing his office that it was a proper deal. 
So both men had the deal they sought from the prosecution, end quote. Investigators poured over Luna's financial records and computer files and combed through his phone logs and his Palm Pilot entries. Man, you know it's pretty old if you got a Palm Pilot. That's pretty... I don't think I've ever seen one of those. I still got one of the originals that we used to use for softball. <laughs> All the kids listening are like, what the hell is a Palm Pilot? They also looked into other cases Luna had prosecuted in the past few years, which included drug gangs and violent criminals, but came up with no promising leads. Now, this is about the time that Mr. Luna goes through what we like to say in the South is one of those uh, newspaper prosecutions. They dig up everything they can find that he ever did wrong and probably interviewed his kindergarten teacher when he messed his pants. Oh, man, you definitely don't want to interview my kindergarten teacher. I got a paddle on the very first day of kindergarten. There you go. Set the stage, didn't you? I was chasing girls on the playground. Well, at a young age, we knew Coach was heterosexual. They didn't appreciate that. I did, though. (laughs) (laughs) Now, authorities would find traces of blood from a second person in Luna's car, like we stated earlier, but release no information on the results of a DNA analysis. An anonymous law enforcement source said that authorities also found a partial fingerprint in the car. Investigators also found a blood stain on a toll booth ticket that the driver of Luna's car turned in to a toll booth collector on leaving the Pennsylvania Turnpike in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Since Luna's car, however, was equipped with the Easy Pass, raising the question why a paper ticket was used. Investigators also questioned all of the gas station attendants, motel operators, and food vendors at the Reading-Lancaster interchange for any sightings of Luna, but did not come up with any eyewitnesses. As the investigation proceeded, authorities began to turn up unusual trips to Philadelphia by Luna, personal debts, and private internet communications. Now, this is where... The prosecution of him, he is raked over the coals in the media. Sources are telling reporters, and imagine this, they're anonymous sources, that investigators had found Luna's name on adult websites. The sources said that the messages sought women for sexual encounters. Some sources also said that the location where Luna's body was found is a place where people have been said to seek other people for sexual encounters. Local officials have denied that that area is such a location. Yeah, this this seems for to me like just plain simple character assassination. Yes, like what does that matter that he was on those sites? Okay, he was married and he was cheating. Does that justify him getting stabbed? Him 36 getting stabbed thirty six times. I mean, what exactly you're trying to get out of that is what I would ask. Why are you reporting that? Why are you? It just doesn't make sense no, to me. No, it doesn't. Now, Luna's father told authorities that Luna did travel to Philadelphia several <laughs> times in the month preceding his death. He even canceled a Thanksgiving weekend trip back to New York City, telling his father, quote, I have a case. I have to go to Pennsylvania, end quote. Officials said he had no court business in Pennsylvania. However, lawyers connected to the drug conspiracy case that was underway in Baltimore have said that a key witness in that case was being detained in the Philadelphia area and that Luna went there several times to interview him. Mm. That would be easy. All they got to do is check the logs. Yep. Now, investigators have also been looking into the unsolved disappearance of about $36,000 introduced 
as evidence in a bank robbery. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That Luna prosecuted in 2002. Maybe he got stabbed once for every thousand dollars missing. I didn't think about that till just now, but that makes sense. I mean, that's clear case, clear cut motive right there. Yep. <laughs> Jonathan had filled out a loan application online about the time of the trial, according to federal law enforcement sources. Luna's loan application was for about $30,000, but it was canceled not long after the evidence money was discovered to be missing. Authorities have determined that Luna had credit card debts of, tw- of about $25,000 at the time of his death. God, I wished I only had that. That's what I'm saying. They're like, well, that, I mean, he had $25,000 of credit card debt. That's why he committed suicide. Who the hell don't have something along those lines of debt? Hell, I got 70 something thousand dollars in student loan debt. I'm not going to commit suicide over it, man. Fuck them. I just won't pay it. <laughs> right. Just leave me alone. Just, like, I'm not going to pay you. I'm sorry. I borrowed it when I was 18. 40-year-old me knows better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's said that he had as many as 16 credit cards, some of which he held without his wife's knowledge. Again. Who I, cares? There's a lot of men out there that's guilty of the same thing. Yeah. Like, you don't always tell your spouse everything. It, again, I think this is just someone's trying to character assassinate this guy. And they care. Well, I mean, what does it matter? Yeah, I don't know. They characterize this as financial problems. I don't. If you've got 16 credit cards and you only owe $25,000, you're not being stupid. And if he does have one or two, it may be because they share an account and he uses that credit card to buy her personal gifts so that she I, doesn't know about it. I, I do that. I have, yeah, I do. I have a couple credit cards in my name only that I did use specifically to buy gifts and buy things that I didn't want my wife to know that I was buying specifically for her. Right. That could easily be the case right here. Again, several anonymous legal sources said that Luna felt that he was on the outs with his supervisors in the U.S. Attorney's Office where he had worked for four years. U.S. Attorney Thomas M. DiBaggio, however, has rejected any suggestion that Luna was at risk of being fired or being reprimanded. If you're not a little bit on the outs with your boss, I don't think you're doing your job right. I agree. You're, if you're if there's no tension between you and your boss, especially in a job like that, you're just a yes man, and you're just sucking up. Yep. That's my opinion. I'm, I've been wrong plenty of times. Just twice that I know of. <laughs> Federal law enforcement. They were huge, though. <laughs> Federal law enforcement officials in March 2004 told CNN that investigators were divided on the question of whether Luna was killed or whether the dozens of small knife wounds were self-inflicted. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not cutting myself 36 times. Mm -mm. And like Mm -mm. you said, I'm not going to kill myself by stabbing myself in the neck. There's, I mean, there's so many better ways to do it if you're going to do it. I mean, you take a bullet train, put it right behind your ear, and you're gone. He drove to Pennsylvania. He could have easily just... Headed into oncoming traffic. Yeah, that's true, too. I mean, that might hurt, but I'm sure 36 stab wounds hurt. Yeah. When his body was discovered, Lancaster County coroner Dr. Barry Welp said that Luna had suffered a number of shallow, quote, prick marks on his chest in addition to several deeper, more serious stab wounds. Shallow prick was my nickname in high school. (laughs) I thought it was college, but okay. Although rare, there have been instances of suicides by stabbing, which have been marked by so-called, quote, hesitation wounds that barely penetrate the skin. 
But those hesitation wounds are near the fatal wound. It's not all over the body. Well, there wasn't a fatal wound. He drowned. Now, could he have drowned from blood loss? He couldn't get himself out. But, I mean, this guy's going to drown in very shallow water. But if you have deeper stab wounds, it would lead you to believe that he stabbed himself. And, and, and the hesitation marks would have to be around those deeper wounds, I guess, is what I was... I, 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 I'm agreeing with him. Yeah, I mean, I had kind of forgotten about the drowning thing because yeah. we well, hung I mean, up on the 36 stab wounds. I mean, it's only his manner of death, but, you know, whatever. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Nearly two months after Luna's killing, investigators found a penknife in the field near where his body was found. His bodies? His body was found. Authorities believe it was Luna's own pocket knife and that it was the knife that caused his wounds. However, mm-hmm. officials have not said whether they found fingerprints or blood on the knife, nor why it was not discovered during an extensive search of the scene on the day his body was found. I don't have an answer for that, but if it was there the whole time, that's enough time for evidence to be washed off of it, I think. Authorities have sought assistance from the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology to examine medical and psychological evidence in the case in an effort to resolve the sensitive question of whether Luna could have killed himself. Autopsy findings by the medical examiner in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, have not been made public. And forensic pathologist Dr. Wayne K. Ross, who performed the autopsy, has refused to discuss the case with reporters. The FBI has offered a $100,000 reward for information that will help federal agents determine whether Luna's death was a premeditated homicide, suicide, or a so random act of violence. So the FBI is offering that, but the FBI is the one that pressured the pathologist yeah, that's what I don't understand. to call it a suicide. That's strange. Hmm. And that, I mean, I guess, well, I guess since it crossed state lines is why the FBI got involved anyway. I was going to say, why is the FBI involved in well, this anyway? Well, that and probably he's an assistant U.S. attorney. That's true, too. Okay, I'll, I'll retract my thought. I didn't even state it, but it's still wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so in March of 2004, the FBI released what it knew of Luna's final hours from Wednesday evening, the 3rd of December, when he left the federal courthouse in Baltimore at 11.38 p.m. to the time he was found in the creek at 5.30 a.m., Thursday, the 4th of December. Electronic toll data provided most of the evidence of the route taken by Luna's car. The times of events earlier in the evening have been provided to the press by anonymous law enforcement officials. See, that's horseshit. That shouldn't be allowed. I agree with you. If you're especially a law enforcement official, you know, why, why do you want to stay anonymous? Now, Jonathan took a roundabout route from his Baltimore office to the creek in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He drove northeastward on I-95 from Baltimore to Delaware and then toward the Philadelphia area. Jonathan was at the Federal District Court building in Baltimore at 5 p.m. to work on the agreement for the Poindexter plea bargain. He left by 6 p.m. apparently to go to his home in the Baltimore suburb of Elkridge, Maryland. Poindexter's attorney... Archangelo Tuminelli said he received a phone call from Luna at 9.06 p.m. in which the prosecutor said he was still drawing up the paperwork for the plea and making sure it was all correct. Tuminelli said he did not know where Luna was at the time, but he said Luna told him he had to go home and would be back in his office in the federal courthouse later. Tuminelli also said that he assumed he would receive a fax from Luna about midnight, but the facts never came. 
According to an unconfirmed report from an unspecified source, Luna, around 9.30 p.m., left a voicemail message on Attorney Ravenella's phone saying he would fax the plea agreement later. Now, around 11 p.m., Luna received a cell phone call and told his wife he had to return to the office. The identity of the caller was not disclosed. Jonathan leaves home shortly after. His car leaves the federal courthouse parking garage at 11.38 p.m. His cell phone and eyeglasses were later found in his office. Luna's car, which we have already discussed, was equipped with the Easy Pass, and it passed through the Fort McHenry Tunnel toll gate heading north at 11.49 p.m. It then passed through the Perryville, Maryland toll plaza northbound at 12.28 a.m. through the Delaware Line toll plaza northbound. Luna's first known stop was the JFK Plaza in Newark, Delaware at 12.57 a.m. His debit card was used to make a $200 ATM withdrawal, but there is no videotape on the security cameras capturing that transaction. He apparently continued north into the Philadelphia area and on to the New Jersey Turnpike and the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Tolls are only taken westbound, New Jersey to Pennsylvania, so there is no electronic data of the crossing from Delaware to New Jersey or Pennsylvania to New Jersey. At approximately 2.37 a.m., Jonathan's car entered the New Jersey Turnpike at Interchange 6A from New Jersey Route 130, and at 2.47 a.m., it entered the Pennsylvania Turnpike at Exit 359. Where'd you get that information about westbound tolls? Because I drove from Georgia to Philadelphia one time, and I remember a shitload of tolls shitload and they kept getting more and more expensive the closer to philadelphia it was like started out at like two dollars the last one was like eight good call like eight dollars <laughs> well this came this still came from the penn, the penn state case review but they're saying that tolls are only taken westbound if you head west from new jersey to pennsylvania i don't know man that doesn't make sense to me I, this. because we know that luna started paying tolls he went. He instead of doing the fast pass, he started paying tolls. So why did you, what, what what tolls were those? I, I don't know. So so your information is not right. At two forty seven a.m., strike it from the record. He entered the Pennsylvania Turnpike, like I said, at exit three fifty nine, the Delaware River Bridge. The car then exited the Pennsylvania Turnpike and re-entered, picking up a paper toll ticket rather <laughs> than passing through the Easy Pass lane. Do not flip me off. At people can't see that. you got to say, fuck you, <laughs> so the people know. At 3.20 a.m., Jonathan pulled into a service plaza along the Pennsylvania Turnpike in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. That is a badass name. In the western suburbs of the metropolitan Philadelphia area. Also in Lancaster County, there's an intercourse. Yeah, I know, and uh, something else. Uh, I can't remember that. My parents have pictures of all of them. They did a motorcycle bike tour up there. <laughs> Employees at a Seneco station said he bought gasoline, a snack, and a soda, but authorities found no sign of him on the grainy video surveillance tapes. That's very odd. Investigators are trying to determine whether another man who can be seen on the tape could have been traveling with Luna at that point. Assistant manager Sham Avaid said Luna put two tanks of gas on his credit card. Two tanks? According to the Baltimore Sun, another employee... Mustafa Balda told the Philadelphia Inquirer that he had seen Luna about 3 a.m. when he purchased drinks. 
Balda told the Inquirer that Luna did not appear to be under any duress. Quote, he was just very calm. Huh. But bought two tanks. That's what I don't understand. Maybe he made a friend. Maybe he was just talking to somebody. Maybe that... I don't know. That's, that, that that's, asshole around here that sn- swindles people out of fucking gas money was up there. What are you talking about? Sidebar, like four years ago, I go after one of our coaching football games. It's like three in the morning. I stop to get some something coffee or something so I don't fall asleep on the way home. This guy in a fucking Mercedes tells me that, oh, man, I left my wallet and I'm headed back to Atlanta. You got 20 bucks for gas? And like a dumbass, I was like, yeah, man. So I bought a coffee and said, look, to put $20 on pump four. I was feeling generous and it was late as fuck. Mm-hmm. Well, just so happens, fast forward two weeks and I'm buying coffee at the same said gas station and this dumbass tries it again and I absolutely berate him in the parking lot. I was like, no, 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 motherfucker. You got me once. You ain't getting me again. No. Keep your ass out of here if you don't, you keep leaving your wallet in, at your house. Huh. And I even told the gas station attendant that that was a scam. Man, you a tattletale. You a snitch, bro. How you gonna, I mean. I slept well that night, too. <laughs> how you gonna piss all over his hustle, man? <laughs> Guess what? Take your hustle somewhere else besides the coffee station that That's I stop at. Man, you a snitch, bro. After inter- on God, on my mama, he ain't getting no money from me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. But you ain't got to rat him out. You can just... He's driving a Mercedes. Well, maybe it was a, it's a lease. <laughs> I don't give a shit if it's his grandmother's. Okay, so back to the story. <laughs> After interviewing the employees and reviewing surveillance videos and cash register receipts, investigators did not believe there was a second car traveling with Luna. So why did he buy two tanks of gas? That's that's odd. Now, a Roy Rogers restaurant manager, Kathy Seidel, at a rest stop in Elverson, Pennsylvania, 30 miles west, said she saw Luna there. She said that she remembers he looked like TV host Bryant Gumbel. A young Bryant Gumbel. Yeah, a little bit. A very skinny young Bryant Gumbel. Yeah, that's kind of, (laughs) I don't know. She did not recall seeing anyone else with him. FBI agents would not say whether Seidel's account is credible. It would have been difficult for Luna to have been in King of Prussia at 3 a.m., paid for his purchases, returned to the turnpike, and reached Elverson before 3.30 a.m. 20 miles and two exits west of Elverson, Luna's vehicle exited the Pennsylvania turnpike at the Reading-Lancaster interchange, exit 286 at 4.04 a.m., a paper ticket with blood spots on it was turned into the toll booth attendant. You know that freaked her the hell out. I'm sure. The exit drops drivers into a small, well-lit strip of all-night gas stations and motels. Investigators visited all of them and found no leads. The lights quickly disappear as the road winds into Breckenock Township and Amish country. Yeah, buddy. Amish mafia. It was Lebanon Levi, brother. <laughs> he did it, man. I, I recently watched that entire season. Series, again. No, the entire series, the, all four seasons. And they're like, oh, well, people say it's fake. I can't believe they would say it's fake. No, it's just fake. As hell. As hell. It's like, oh, we're getting, we're getting in a fist fight, but nobody throws punches. Um, yeah, that's fake. Anyway, I enjoyed the hell out of it, though. It was entertaining. Yeah. I mean, you got to suspend disbelief. At 5.30 a.m., the well drilling employee reported an unknown car on Thank company property, that. its engine still idling. 
Luna's body was found laying face down in the creek off Dry Tra- 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 off Dry Tavern Road in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. According to the county coroner, Dr. Barry Walp, Luna was alive when his car entered the parking lot and pulled up to the creek. He died of, quote, fresh water drowning and his stab wounds. Oh, and his stab wounds. That's what this guy's now mm, saying. Okay. Now, officials would not comment on how the killer might have escaped. On foot, clearly. Or in a car. Yeah, or through the could, creek. Or he could have disappeared into the the void. What the hell are you talking about? I don't know how the killer could got away. <sighs> okay. Now we get into the probably the biggest what the fuck moment of this case. And when you thought it just can't get any weirder. Oh, hold on, Leroy. It's about to. An article on Newslank, N-E-W-S-L-A-N-C dot com by Bill Kiesling has some interesting points that we are going to share with you. The headline to the article reads, Prominent Baltimore defense attorney Kenneth Ravenel, quote, good friend and mentor of Jonathan Luna, has been indicted for alleged collusion with a drug kingpin. Ravenel served as defense counsel on two of Prosecutor Luna's most mysterious cases, including Luna's last case. So 16 years after Jonathan's murder, Kenneth Ravenel is indicted by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore for allegedly working for years with a drug kingpin. A federal grand jury indicted Kenneth in late September of 2019 for diversive and diverse offenses related to the alleged use of his law offices in collusion with a Jamaican drug boss. They'll cut your damn head off. Oh, yeah. Jamaicans don't fuck around, bro. They will kill you. If, they, if, if they're involved in drugs and they're those, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not generalizing the good people of Jamaica. I'm just saying if you're He's Jamaican, Jamaican drug not dealers. all Jamaicans, but if you're a, a Jamaican, Jamaican drug dealer, they will fucking kill you. With a machete. Yeah. The charges against Ravenel... You don't screw around with Jamaican drug dealers, Haitian drug dealers, or Mexican drug dealers. They will kill you. For shits and giggles. Especially that Mexican cartels, man. I would never in my life fuck with those guys. If you're a Mexican cartel member and you're listening, the utmost respect to you, sir. Big fans of your work. Big fans, guys. (laughs) (laughs) We don't do drugs, but... We understand. If yeah, if we did, we it's 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 a well-oiled machine. Yeah, thank you for making Narcos so good. Yes, uh, not Narcos. Uh, it is Narcos Ozark and Ozark. <laughs> Charges against Attorney Ravenel include alleged racketeering conspiracies, money laundering, and drug trafficking. We have the full indictment, and I'll post a link to that to our socials. Ravenel for decades as a prominent pillar of the Baltimore legal establishment, has pled not guilty and denies any and all wrongdoing. Of course. Among other alleged infractions... How dare you accuse him of such things? Federal prosecutors accused Ravenel of schooling drug clients on how to use burner phones and other methods to avoid law enforcement detection. How hard is it to use a burner phone? You buy it and you use it. Quote, Ravenel (laughs) instructed members of the conspiracy to remove batteries from their cellular devices and leave their phones outside meetings held to discuss illegal activities in order to prevent such meetings, including meetings held within the offices of the law firm, 
from being recorded by federal enforcement. Man, it's not even federal enforcement anymore. It's damn Google and Facebook. Man, I, I literally spoke out loud recently to some. I was having a conversation with somebody that you wanted one of those three foot dildos. <laughs> well, that's well known, but I can't even remember what I was saying. And sure enough, as soon as I got on Facebook. I had targeted ads. I'm like, I never, I never even Googled that. I never looked it up. I just said it. And now I'm getting targeted ads for it. Well, I've tried that around Christmas time. It don't work with like my Christmas gifts. Like I'll find her stuff and I'm like just over and over saying what I want. Never. I love, uh, there was one thing. It was like a tweet that was like, thanks Obama. Now we all inundated with all this homosexual crap. I'm even getting ads from Facebook now. And somebody was like, I think that's more of based on your search history. <laughs> 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 what? <laughs> Whoopsie. Whoopsie. Anyway, back to the case. Ravenel instructed members of the conspiracy to utilize certain drug couriers to utilize specific modes of transportation and to transport shipments of drugs and money at particular times of day, all for the purpose of evading law enforcement. And he instructed the co-conspirators to use payphones and in-person meetings when discussing drug trafficking in order to minimize the risk of being intercepted was, by law enforcement. I was about enforcement. to say, there was, there's no more payphones, but it's 2003, so there are probably still payphones around. You would think. I only only time you see payphones is like in airports. The indictment further <laughs> alleges that Ravenel obtained access to incarcerated co-conspirators whom he did not represent so that Ravenel and others could attempt to improperly influence their testimony, attempt to cause them to execute false affidavits and witness statements, which Ravenel and the law firm knew to be false and attempt to cause witnesses to withhold testimony from official proceedings, namely a federal criminal case against drug dealer R.B. in the indictment in the District of Maryland. Yeah, don't say his name because we don't want that smoke. If all this seems strangely, strangely reminiscent of something, perhaps you may have just watched Better Call Saul. I love Better Call Saul. Saul good, man. So Ravenel's attorney, oh, this is a good one. Well, you got a fart? No, this name. <laughs> he graduated from Howard University. He's a law professor. His name is Lewis Outlaw the Third. I'm sorry, no, no, no. Lucius Outlaw the Third. His last name is Outlaw. Yes. Look, legit. Legit defense attorney named Lucius Outlaw the Third, and he teaches that law is, at Howard University. That is, I may enroll in Howard University just to take classes from him. That is, that's probably the best name we've ever heard. Mr. Lucius said to the Baltimore Sun, quote, Ken Ravenel has dedicated the past 30 years and counting to represent people in the toughest fights of his life. So, you know, back in the day when like... Hold on, I'm preaching. No, 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 no. no, no I got to no. get through this. Okay, well, I just want to... Oh, Jesus, go ahead. I'm just saying, like, back in the day when your last name represented your profession, like, you know, Smith was a blacksmith, what did he do? I'm, what did his family do? I'm pretty sure it was not on the up and up. And for that matter, what did John Hancock's family do? <laughs> 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 All right, back to my preaching ceremony. Mr. Ravenel is held in high esteem by the criminal defense bar of Mellon, the state and federal judges of Mellon, and many other jurisdictions, his clients, and the wider Baltimore community. Wow. He has the support of his family, especially his wife, Kay, and his five children. 
while he regrets that this fight has been unfairly brought to him, he will not run away from it, and he looks forward to proving his innocence and defeating the government's five-year and running effort to tarnish his name. Why is your southern lawyer voice sounds like foghorn leghorn? I, I say, I say, the defense rests. <laughs> uh, because I wanted to preach a little. <coughs> now preach on it. Would you get that cat hair out of your head? Edit that out, please. I, there's no way in hell that's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Ravenel's trial was scheduled to begin this April 13th, but may now be postponed For until why? after additional charges are returned. Or is it because of COVID? No. Federal prosecutors in late February of 2020 said that more charges would be forthcoming. They also asked the court to seal the motion from the public as the information it contains, they wrote, may thwart an ongoing criminal investigation by leading individuals to engage in additional additional obstructive conduct, destroy evidence, and flee from prosecution. Now, we get into the last case of Luna and Ravenel. Because Jesus, man, we talked about him more than we did Jonathan Luna. At the time... Remember, Ravenel was one of two attorneys defending Dion Smith and Walter Poindexter. Dude. The Smith-Poindexter case, tried in December of 2003, turned out to be Jonathan Luna's last case. He disappeared from his office, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah, we already went over that. Yeah. If you don't remember, please rewind. Yes. Good God. Now, during trial, it developed that the agents in the FBI's Baltimore field office had allowed the drug informant to run wild on the streets of Baltimore. Whitey Bulger. The court... That was in Boston, man. ...heard evidence that the FBI's confidential informant, also known on the streets as a CI... Well, you the best in the biz, buddy. ...continued <laughs> to deal heroin while under FBI supervision and received undisclosed perks while working for the U.S. Justice Department. That's a good way to get yourself killed by other drug dealers. Though. Yes. I mean, wow. Attorneys Ravenel and Tuminelli charged that Luna had improperly kept these problems from defendant, from defendant Smith and Poindexter violating their Brady rights, and Judge Quarles agreed. Quarles ordered an investigation of the FBI's, quote, kid glove treatment, end quote, of the informant. The inquiry was to begin in court the next day, what turned out to be the day Luna was found dead 70 miles away. Well, here's the thing about the kid glove treatment is the FBI is not going to give a shit if a small-time heroin dealer is dealing small-time heroin. They're going for big fish. They're going for Jamaican Bob. Yeah, and if allowing a small-time heroin dealer to continue to sell heroin, eventually it will lead them to the big fish. I don't, I don't think that's as uncommon as you might be leading the people on to believe. You're misleading our listeners. No, I'm not. I'm setting the stage for background information. Oh, same thing. These revelations <laughs> about an F FBI informant running wild in the streets came at a very politically sensitive time. Only a few months earlier... Another heroin dealer pled guilty to burning down a house owned by the Dawson family, burning the family to death so that he could deal heroin on their street corner. Damn. Okay. All the while, that, he was out of jail. That's real kid glove treatment. <laughs> on unsupervised probation. Dang. So the city was pissed. Yeah, I bet. 
The FBI informant in the Smith Poindexter case was caught with heroin on the same day the Dawson's house burnt down in Baltimore. It wouldn't do to have Baltimoreans know that another heroin dealer ran wild in the city while supposedly under FBI supervision. Now, to stave off another investigation and to shut down the troubled Smith Poindexter case, Luna's supervisors in the Baltimore U.S. Attorney's Office late in the day of December 3rd instructed Luna to offer the defendants a plea deal, make it all go away. But there was a problem. In early court documents, Luna had alleged that one of the defendants, Tuminelli's client, had engaged in a drug-related murder connected to the case. If true, the murder would have rendered the defendant ineligible for a plea deal. On the evening of Jonathan Luna's death, he was overheard arguing with attorneys Ravenel and Tuminelli. As they exited the courtroom on the last day of Luna's life, court reporter Ned Richardson recalled that Luna was engaged in a heated argument with attorneys Ravenel and Tuminelli about the terms of the plea deal. The three lawyers walked a brief distance down the hall and continued their heated argument outside the office of court reporter Richardson, who himself had just returned with the court record. And this is Richardson talking, quote, My office is near the courtroom. I was in my office on my computer working on the trial transcripts. I heard Jonathan Luna, Ravenel, and Tuminelli outside in the hall arguing about conditions of the plea agreement. The disagreement was heated, loud, and disruptive. They were making so much commotion, I was afraid I'd make some mistake with my computer and my notes. He says he stuck his head out, Richardson says this, of his officer and told them, quote, take it somewhere else, guys. The proposed plea deal would remain unfinished on Luna's computer in his office the next morning, while Luna lay dead in the stream scores of miles away in Pennsylvania. Hmm. Now, we get into the court transcripts. So basically, give us a little recap, because that was a lot of information, and I had trouble following it because I'm stupid. All right, so give us a recap of where we're at now. So basically, they're in court. Mm-hmm. With Ravenel and Tuminelli, Poindexter and Dingling. So these are the two rappers that, that Jonathan yes. Luna's last case he's working on. And they're trying to get a plea deal. In the court, he's saying, I can't give you a plea deal because he committed murder. And the person that is negotiating the, a plea deal with Luna is later found to be in conspiracy with a drug dealer. Yes. Okay. Ravenel. So this is going to be... Okay. This is an a, episode of Call Saul. Yeah, it's basically providing motive yes. for this prosecutor to want to off yes. Luna. Yes. So the court transcripts just, even paint I mean, a better I'm, picture. I'm with you. I'm just trying to, you know, in case somebody is as somebody slow as you. Some... <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of info, man. It's hard to keep up. Okay, so the court transcripts relate that in the courtroom on the morning of Luna's death, while Luna's whereabouts still re- remain unknown, attorney Tuminelli told Judge Quarles, quote, I believe that we did work out the terms of the plea agreement. I spoke with Mr. Luna at 9 p.m. last night. Judge Quarles says, "Uh uh-huh. He called me at home and said, you know, I just want to make sure that we got all the details. He went over the details. I said that is correct. He said I left the office, but I have to go back and complete the agreement. Tuminelli then says, and he was supposed to fax the agreement to me sometime last night. Quarles asks, have you seen the paper yet? Tuminelli says no, because he was supposed to fax it sometime during the evening, and it was not faxed. 
Now, with Luna nowhere in sight, his former supervisor, Assistant U.S. Attorney James Warwick, Chief of the Office's Criminal Division, arrived in the courtroom and asked Judge Quarles for a 15-minute recess so that Warwick could go to Luna's office to find the unfinished plea deal that Luna walked away from a few hours before his death. Warwick ended up signing the rushed plea deal for Luna. And if you want to check out the plea deal, I've got a link for that too. Warwick asked Judge Quarles, may I ask for the court's indulgence in giving me 15 minutes to finalize any changes with Mr. Ravenel and to find out where the heck that other document is? He then, Warwick, proceeds to Luna's office, finds one completed plea deal on Luna's laptop, along with the uncompleted plea deal for the defendant involved in the alleged drug-related murder. He cuts and pastes between the two documents in a slap-happy fashion to complete the deal. Warwick then signs Luna's name to the plea agreement and initials it. Yeah, that's not legal <laughs> at all. Mr. Tuminelli spoke with Luna last night, and he was supposed to fax down the plea agreement. FBI Special Agent Steve Skinner. FBI Agent Skinner. X-Files. I never watched X-Files. Handler of the errant informant told the judge, quote, it was still in his computer up in his office, and we have paged him. And his cell phone is on his desk. His glasses are in his office. We are probably going to go over to the parking garage where he, where we park and just look for his car. Court stenographer, Mr. Ned Richardson, who told about the heated argument, states that Skinner starts to say this is where Luna parks, but then stops to say it where we park. From this, we glean not only that the agents park where Luna parks, but also that they know the car Luna is driving. They were going to go, quote, look for his car. Ravenel, for his part, in the courtroom on the morning of his um, Luna's death, says to Judge Quarles, quote, Your Honor, I was asking the court just to take a recess, recess, pieces, take a recess until we find out what's going on. You know, as much as we're concerned, obviously, about the jury and about the defendants, I mean, all of us are personally concerned about Mr. Luna. I think that we need to try to let the FBI agents focus on trying to find him. Why are you already concerned if you've got the plea deal, is my question. Ravenel's now all up in arms. He must be in danger. Yeah, if you, it sounds, given the benefit of hindsight, that seems like he's covering, he's guilty, you know, he knows more than everyone else does. It does seem that way. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, but... Now, a short while later, the head prosecutors in Luna's U.S. Attorney's Office were informed that Luna was found dead in an icy stream in rural Pennsylvania. He'd been stabbed dozens of times. According to this report, his throat was slit nearly ear to ear. Hmm. His Justice Department ID badge still hung around his neck as FBI Special Agent Skinner told the judge, Luna's cell phone, eyeglasses, and laptop computer, the computer, the latter containing the unfinished plea deal, remained behind in his office. He also left behind a widow and two young boys. Hmm. Very, if you're, if, I mean, very convenient that the laptop containing the plea deal is going to be left behind. Pretty, pretty, pretty convenient. 
We know Luna had the portable laptop on his desk because during the Smith-Poindexter trial, Luna tells Judge Quarles about a piece of evidence on it. Quote, it's a videotape. The court transcript reads, quote, we have a, reduced all of the videotapes to a computer file which is stored in the laptop at my desk, end quote. The things he left behind in his office are at once tantalizing clues and perplexing riddles. Who gets up and goes for a drive behind leaving behind a cell phone, eyeglasses, and a laptop. Luna's friends and family are all on record stating that he needed his glasses to drive. Does he have a second pair? That's an obvious rate, you know. Yeah, probably. Did he carry a second cell phone? Friends and family say no, but as a lawyer, you probably do have a work phone and a personal phone. On the night he died... Jonathan left his office at Baltimore's Lombard Street Federal Courthouse shortly before midnight. The FBI timeline of events notes that Luna left the courthouse parking garage across Lombard Street from his office at 11.38 p.m. And then we get into that whole thing with the easy pass again. There's not a whole lot of wiggle room for him to go back into the courthouse to retrieve his laptop. There would seem to be several possibilities or combinations of possibilities, however. Either Luna left the courthouse alone, coolly accidentally forgetting all of his personal items, or hurriedly, or someone came into his office and Luna voluntarily or under orders left the courthouse and parking garage with this person or persons. Or Luna was intercepted in or near the parking garage by his assailants or at a traffic intersection not far away before he reached I-95. Or Luna drove off alone, heading north, intent on rendezvousing with someone unknown. He may have even stepped outside the courthouse to make a phone call from a second, quote, burner phone or to meet with someone and was intercepted there. He could have driven away from the parking garage and was intercepted by his killers at a red light on Lombard Street. The timeline's tight, but not impossibly tight for that scenario. But that wouldn't explain, if he was intercepted before he started hitting tolls, it doesn't explain why he was using a fast pass at one point and then not at another. Wouldn't the, I mean, if there's a killer in the car that uses the fast pass, you would think they would continue because they don't want to be seen. There's right. cameras at toll booths. And that's the thing. There's no video showing Luna leaving the courthouse or it's never been released by authorities. The courthouse and at the time and now is covered with video cameras inside and out. Seemingly every hallway and the U.S. Marshal Service security officers monitor the video on banks of screens at the front desk in the lobby of the courthouse, and any video is recorded. The Justice Department has never released a single frame of video of Luna leaving the courthouse. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't destroyed either. True. Some students of the case suggest that Luna, quote, was marched out of the courthouse by someone with a badge and a gun, end quote. And that would explain the things that he left behind. But that would mean the courthouse video cameras either were disabled, weren't working, or the FBI know, knows who did this and has been lying about it for 15 years. Which is, I mean, it's possible. Maybe they're, 
keeping everything close to the vest, trying to catch said person. This seems to be the ultimate conspiracy theory involving the FBI, the U.S. Marshal Service, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and who knows who else. Perhaps not impossible, but unlikely. Perhaps the courthouse closed-circuit television system simply was shut off so late at night and there is no video. That doesn't make, that doesn't make sense. Why would it be shut off because it's late at night? If someone's going to break into a courthouse, it's going to be at night. Yeah. The Justice Department and the FBI owe the public an explanation, according to the reporter. He states that it's more reasonable to him to presume that Luna left his office in the courthouse alone and there must have been some other explanation for the things he left behind. But what that explanation is... You don't know. Now, when you have eliminated the possible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Mr. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And if you look at Occam's Razor, the most simple... The simplest, most obvious answer is you typically the correct one. Without the small, With the smallest number of assumptions is the correct one. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I said. Yes, that's what you said. Yes, that's what you said. Don't correct me. Okay, so now we need to get into the $38,000 because it wasn't $36,000. It was actually $38,100. But here's the... who's counting? Here's the kicker on this. Ravenel and Luna both signed that it was missing. Hmm. Okay. And that it was returned. And it was returned? That They both signed that they had gone down there and it was missing, and then they come back and it's there, and they both sign that it's back. That's weird. Yes. Following the announcement of Jonathan Luna's death, Attorney Ravenel described Luna as a, quote, good friend, and I was his mentor. Well, how do we know that Luna's signature wasn't forged? Because, I mean... Hell, his boss did it. That's what I'm saying. Ravenel forged his signature. So, why? I mean, can we assume that he might have done it this time as well? Now, this is not the only weird case that Ravenel and Luna were involved in. Another strange incident in a criminal case involving Ravenel hung over Luna's head at the time of his death. Defense attorney Ravenel represented bank robber Nicole Brown in a September 2002 federal trial in which Luna was the prosecutor. At that trial, $38,100 in evidence money vanished into thin air from the courtroom. Both Luna and Ravenel signed a court document stipulating that the exhibits, including the money, were returned at the end of the trial. At the time of his death, Luna was taking a lot of heat from his superiors in the prosecutor's office about the missing money. They were demanding he take a lie detector test. This is where the theories about him fearing for his job come from. Well, shoot, I mean, fearing for your job, not fearing for your freedom. If you're a prosecuting attorney and you stole $38,000 from a case, you're going to jail. I mean, your job's one thing, but going to jail is definitely another. Talking about a low-life piece of shit, whoever ordered this next thing needs to be kicked in the nuts. <laughs> because after Luna's murder, his wake was interrupted by a team of FBI agents who unsuccessfully searched for the missing evidence money while grieving friends and relatives looked on. Wow, that's pretty shitty. Yes. That's pretty shitty right there. I mean, it's probably a good time to do something like that. Catch them off guard, but Jesus Christ, come on. Yeah, that's what I don't understand. (laughs) Before Ravenel's 2019 indictment, he was under investigation by the FBI and other authorities. His law offices were repeatedly searched by investigators, setting off ongoing appeals, court challenges to the searches on concern of breach of 
attorney-client privileges. Ravenel's stunning prosecution shares another coincidence with Luna's last hours. Ravenel's indictment alleges that Ravenel was involved in drug-related activities with a client only known as R.B., but R.B. operated a multi-state illegal drug trafficking organization when it was, and was an associate client of Ravenel at the time of the indictment. R.B. became a client of Ravenel on or about February 21st, 2011. So he had his claws in it for eight years before they indicted him. Wow. Now, the Baltimore Press quickly deduced that R.B. referred to a Jamaican drug dealer named Richard Bird. Dude. That's not me. That's on the press. No. The allegations center <laughs> on the years of 2009 to 2014, during which Ravenel worked for the prestigious law firm of William H. Billy Murphy Jr. and defended Jamaican national kingpin Richard Bird, the Baltimore Sun reported a few days after Ravenel's indictment. I didn't say that. Bird pled guilty to drug-related offenses in 2016, shortly before his trial was to begin. He was sentenced to 26 years in prison for conspiracy to distribute cocaine and marijuana and money laundering. Man, leave marijuana alone. Come on, it's not a crime. The prosecutor of the 2016 Bird case was Assistant U.S. Attorney James Warwick, the same James Warwick who was Luna's former boss, who violated the crime scene of Luna's office on the day of his death to cut a questionable plea deal for Smith and Poindexter and forge Luna's signature and initials on the court documents. That's not legal, man. I said it earlier. It's still not legal. The Baltimore Sun reported in 2016 that Warwick asked Defendant Bird at his trial, do we have a deal or do we not? End quote. Hmm. What the fuck? Well, we're certainly establishing that there are people out there that could have wanted him dead. I think that's a given. But what happened to him? That's the biggest... We, we kind of like... We started off not knowing... I'm pretty sure he was killed. You're, either he was... Either they thought that he knew something he didn't, or he did know something... And they killed him for it. I mean, that's but you're not going to convince me that this this dude committed suicide. Oh hell no! Committed suicide by stabbing himself 36 times and then drowning in a freaking puddle, essentially a puddle. I mean, I can believe a lot of things. I believe in Sasquatch. I well, believe, obviously, you don't believe in a whole lot. You didn't watch the damn X Files. Don't think I'm not going to let that slide, buddy. I didn't watch the X Files. You God. Mulder? I, I wasn't interested in fake uh, paranormal stuff. I'm interested in real paranormal stuff. Oh, here stuff. we go. You just said you watched the Amish Mafia for four seasons knowing damn well that That's it was not fake. paranormal. It was entertainment. <laughs> I just didn't watch the X-Files. I got no excuse. Oh, my God. I don't know why I Our didn't. friendship is I, on I the border of I being destroyed right now. I don't now. care, man. We don't have to be friends. <laughs> we just have to be business partners. We just got to be, you know, we just got to put up with each other for an hour every week. <laughs> <laughs> man, I missed you. I know, man. It's been, it's been too long. It's been a minute. So, all right, let's 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 start to wrap this up. We're getting too too long. Too all much right, information. So there is a ton of information in this. So That's we, way more information than I got. I was just like, some bitch, he disappeared and <laughs> he died. And then I come walking in with all this conspiracy. Yeah, I didn't know nothing about this. So here's the thing. If you take out the conspiracy, it's just another random act of violence. 
But when you add in the conspiracy and then the prosecution of Attorney Ravenel and Luna's boss, I mean, it paints a pretty clear picture. I mean, I'm, I promise you, I would never, I will never, you'll never convince me that this was a suicide. So I'm going to say there's some legs to this conspiracy stuff, unless it was just some random ass person that decided to, you know, take uh, an assistant U.S. attorney for a joyride through three states. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the superficial wounds would indicate that maybe they were torturing him, trying to get information. Somebody might have been driving while somebody was in the back questioning him and, Anytime he gave an answer they didn't like, tick, tick. poke, poke. And then they held him down and drowned him and, and drowned him, drowned him, did him, him. In that little bitty creek. Yeah, in a pond, um, a, a puddle pretty much. Yes, it I is mean, a puddle with lots of rocks. Yeah. that. That's what usually a creek is, but okay. <laughs> I mean, that, that makes sense to me because suicide does not make any sense. That doesn't that doesn't answer why the FBI was pushing for the suicide. I think it is why. I mean, if you if you go down the conspiracy rabbit hole, that's why they push for the suicide to get it so that it's not an unsolved murder and they can keep this shit under wraps. So, the like, F, so you're he, saying the FBI is involved in the conspiracy, or do you think the FBI was pushing for a suicide to throw off the people involved and try to catch them? And that's what I'm thinking. That's how I know it's. There's a lot of strings to this map i think the fbi wanted the paper they wanted it to go away quickly so that whoever they thought killed him would relax and mess up yeah so i mean imagine imagine if you will you're involved in this conspiracy and you murder this poor guy by torturing him and drowning him and then you read in the newspaper that he committed suicide you're like you fucking believe we got a waiting dude 36 stab wounds. They say he committed suicide. How fucking stupid. (laughs) That's what I think. I I think, I don't think the FBI is culpable. I think they're trying to get to a bigger fish and they wanted that to go away. I I think you're right. I don't think the FBI is part of the conspiracy to cover it up. They're covering it up to catch the people that did it. Yes, I agree. Well, that's our, I mean, that's both our theories then. We agreed. So now we're going to get into uh, our recommendations. And so I'll let you go first since you've been gone so long. So my recommendation is a two-parter, but they're very related. Uh, I'm going to recommend the Stephen King book, The Outsider. I read it. It was freaking phenomenal. And then the second part of it is once you get done reading it, get on HBO Max and watch the 10-part miniseries based on that book. It is phenomenal. Freaking awesome, man. Yes. I've, I have read both the book and watched the miniseries, and I was hooked on both. Hell yeah. They're both really well done. Yes, very well done. So that's my recommendation. Get get, get yourself a book. A book. Get right. on that Amazon. Get the book. And then get you there on that HBO Max. Now, I'm going to flip the tables and say that I am recommending a YouTube video by the channel Darkness Prevails. I love that channel. It has a five-hour video, which you can like just turn on and walk away. Jesus Christ, five hours? 38 true mountain horror stories. And some of them, you're like, oh, God, I hope they're making that up. I do like the missing mountain people, people that go missing in the mountains. Are they all 411 cases? No. They're just, some of them are like 
dabbled with cryptids, and then there are some, but yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in and welcoming young coach back from his boot scooting boogie tour. And hopefully we come back to you next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. (laughs) Deuces.